this could be the first case uh, against the docudrama ever. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Wednesday, September 27th. Today, I'm joined by Eric Gardner to discuss the splashy, high-stakes lawsuit that almost no one is talking about. Netflix and award-winning filmmaker Ava DuVernay are being sued for defamation over their series about the Central Park Five. The case is now going to trial, and it might be the first time in modern memory that the makers of a film or television series could be punished for libeling someone. And later, Bill Cohan and Ben chat about Bob Iger's options for selling or spinning off ABC and ESPN, and how the auction process is playing on Wall Street. We'll discuss all that and much, much more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Wednesday, everybody. I'm joined today by Eric Gardner to talk about a really fascinating Hollywood story uh, that's up on Puck this week. The headline is the Ava DuVernay Netflix suit that no one is talking about. Welcome to the show, Eric. Thanks for having me again. (laughs) I love having you. Uh, It's stories like these where you really kick ass. A federal judge in New York has ordered Netflix to trial for making stuff up and ruining someone's reputation. Those are your words. With Ava DuVernay's 2019 docudrama, When They See Us, which was about the Central Park jogger case. Ava DuVernay is obviously a celebrated filmmaker, Academy Award winner for Selma and for 13th. She has a huge deal with Netflix. She's generally speaking one of the biggest people in Hollywood. But there is a defamation lawsuit against Netflix, against Ava DuVernay, and one of the writers on this film for basically moving forward with a portrayal of the bad guy slash bad lady in this film and completely misrepresenting her, her role in the Central Park Five jogger case. And it's fascinating to me because so many people these days are getting information about history, news, recent history from docudramas. For example, there was the uh, recent HBO series, Winning Time, you know, the rise of, of the Lakers. I think Jerry West actually had a complaint against them for misrepresenting him and his personality in that series. But you list several examples uh, in recent years where real life figures and real life stories were represented in film. Elvis, King Richard, Trial of Chicago 7, Ford versus Ferrari, Vice, Bohemian Rhapsody. Look, the people involved in these movies and the people being portrayed might have complaints about how they're represented on film, on camera, in TV, in movies. But rarely do those pieces of media, you know, end up going to trial over defamation. What's different about this one? Why is it actually moving to trial? Yeah, not just rarely, but never. This could be the first case uh, against the docudrama ever, (laughs) as far as I know and as far as people tell me. Um, So it's quite a big deal. What makes this case different? That's That's a very good question. For one thing, I think that there was a campaign that, you know, this was going to represent 
the truth that this was, you know, that this wasn't just a dramatization. Yes, it was that, but you know, th- this was going to be the story that they didn't want you to hear. Um, it was kind of marketed that way. It was marketed as the celebrated filmmaker who, you know, did a famous movie about the 1960s uh, civil rights march. Did all, you know, all these kind of recreations of of history coming in and and you know tackling the Central Park jogger case, which is certainly famous at two. Um, so there was a lot of expectation that this dramatization was going to be pretty faithful to, to the historical record. Uh, not only that, but I think what's different about this case is that, um, at least from the plaintiff's perspective, Linda Fairstein, uh, who led the uh, sex crimes division in New York uh, a few decades ago, I think, you know, from her perspective, they were trying to target her. They were, you know, out to get her. They were out to, I'll use the the word cancel her. You know, you see that in, in some of the social media postings and some of the, the reactions to the series when it came out. So I think that there was, you know, a specific kind of campaign around around the marketing of this movie. And, you know, she definitely got the heat of a lot of it. And so f- when the judge saw it, not only did the judge say there's a lot of mistruths here, they attribute to her things that she didn't do, but he also saw, you know, this potential evidence of actual malice. And, you know, as we all know, that is, you know, the key element for any case brought by a public figure, because, you know, these defamation cases are tough. And so a lot fell. If a famous person came to me and said, I'm thinking about suing over some dramatization, what I'd probably say is, you know, you're going to lose <laughs> because that's the history of, of these cases. Uh, you know, most of them, you know, are just cease and desist letters that put uh, filmmakers on notice. And if they do sue, most are thrown out at the first point, the first stage, because, you know, no one would believe them to be true. There's no evidence of actual malice and all that. Very rarely does it get to the discovery phase and, you know, and why I wanted to write about this particular suit is because there's only been a couple instances that have ever gone past the summary judgment motion. And this is one of them. And I think people should be talking about it. People should be talking about it. I mean, this is a big deal. This is a very big deal in part because, well, we, we also rarely get to see the inner workings of Netflix, which is a pretty opaque company. So it, it's possible that communications and documents and you know business methods might surface in discovery or trial. Getting back to the actual malice issue, because again, people sue newspapers and media companies all the time for defamation, but they have to prove that someone knowingly misrepresented uh, the other person and went ahead with it anyway for creating or doing whatever is at the center of the lawsuit. Can you tell me uh, so far, one, a little bit more about this plaintiff, Linda Fairstein, and her role in the film and why uh, it's it's controversial. And then also, what is the evidence so far that has surfaced that could show actual malice? Right. So Linda Fairstein, as I said, was a prosecutor in New York in the in the 80s and in the 90s. And she worked on some pretty famous cases and she became pretty renowned. She eventually headed the sex crimes division of the Manhattan DA's office. Um, I think she 
kind of stepped down around the turn of the century and then became a mystery novelist and became a pretty successful mystery novelist. Not only that, she was, you know, all over, you know, news TV, cable news TV, being kind of a pundit on on legal cases. So her name was pretty out there. And then, you know, she showed up in lots of different ways. If you were paying attention to the Harvey Weinstein saga, she at one point was, you know, representing him tried to uh, kill the New-, the New York Times expose uh, on his behalf. She shows up as a character in that recent movie, she said, too. So she's like one of the few individuals who's been the subject of multiple dramatizations of, over the last few years. That's who she is. The problem is that it appears like she only had a very minimal role in, in the Central Park jogger case. She headed the department, but she didn't personally prosecute this case. She might have had some roles at the edges of the case, but when the series was made, she was kind of like the famous one out there. And so they kind of used her character to be the, the big villain of the, of, this, of the story. So why is Netflix uh, in particular in trouble here? Well, there's evidence to suggest that when the script came to Netflix's door and they were evaluating it and everything that, like that, they said, this is great, but we really need to heighten this prosecutor role. And so they, it's a, they kind of like magnify uh, her villainry for narrative purposes. So they played a role in basically how the script turned out. Not only that, uh, there's evidence that they were aware of a problem on their hands. Her lawyers had, had gotten wind that this series was in the works. And so they sent uh, you know, a menacing letter. Uh, one of the Netflix employees watched the 2020 documentary about the Central Park case. And so there was kind of an awareness that she was complaining that her role wasn't particularly big in this case, and yet they had cast this big actress, Felicity Huffman, to play her, so she kind of knew what was coming. And so all that is evidence, maybe, that they were reckless, uh, recklessly indifferent to the truth. And the judge sees all this and says, you know, there's enough evidence here for a jury to decide uh, Netflix's culpability. And the culpability of the uh, filmmakers who, you know, did extensive research for their series. They watched the Ken Burns documentary. They went through all the books. They went through all the the depositions in both the criminal case as well as the civil case when when the exonerated men sued the city. Uh, So they had all these records. and, And if they wanted to, they could have seen from the record that Linda Fairstein's role wasn't particularly big. But having all that source material, they still went ahead and gave her this big role anyway. Now, you're allowed certain creative liberties as a filmmaker. The First Amendment allow, it certainly allows that. The question is whether audiences are misled by this whole thing, whether they are going to personally believe that what they see on the screen is true and that, and that she did these sorts of things, and whether or not the defendants, Ava DuVernay and Netflix, hold culpability and hold fault for for that. Yeah, you mentioned in your piece, another Netflix employee had watched that 2020 documentary about the Central Park Jogger case, and Fairstein wasn't even in the documentary at all. Like there There was all of this, there's obviously so much historical documentation from this case. People talk about it today offhandedly that to, you know, apparently, possibly willfully misrepresent somebody could rise 
to the level of defamation. The other thing the plaintiff side wants to underscore is that as the series was coming out, DuVernay texted one of the co-writers of the series, someone named Attica Locke, who, in your words, had been quite vocal about Fairstein on social media. DuVernay texted her, again, at the time the series was coming out, saying, quote, she's about to feel it all. Again, this, I'm not saying it is malice, but it suggests malice. And it's it's clear to the judge that he thinks a jury should decide. But I, I want to go back to something you wrote, which is it's long been suggested that because of the First Amendment, uh, writers and creators of film and television series have a lot of creative license to portray uh, historical figures, living or dead, as they please. Um, and that in- includes creating composite characters sometimes. But, you know, it's always been assumed that viewers are sophisticated enough to recognize that there's some dramatization involved here, that they are not actually documentaries. But let me use the Jeffrey Dahmer series on Netflix as an example. Millions and millions and millions of people watch that. Many of those people, in fact, most of them, didn't know necessarily about Jeffrey Dahmer before the Netflix series. And I would think beyond some of those folks going to look at Wikipedia, that you know, most of them took it at face value. And I do think the modern consumer uh, of media, whether it's on, on Netflix or Hulu or whatever, I mean, they walk away from watching these things, telling their friends, oh my God, this is crazy. This is what happened in this show. This is what happened, blah, 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 blah. Like we can't just assume that people are going to <laughs> like fact check these things going on like LexisNexis or like digging up old New York Times articles to see what's true and what's not. And like, I don't want to like talk shit about the First Amendment, but at the same time, you know, real human beings can, you know, have their legacies tarnished by these things that many people think are true. You you, you say that people don't go on LexisNexis. It's funny when I watch a show like the <laughs> Cra- when I watch a show like The Crown, the first thing I do is go on Wikipedia and and compare it. You know, I was like, it, you did this do? really happen? I do, I do, okay. <laughs> because you're you know, sophisticated. Some, yeah, I mean, I, I don't believe everything I I, uh, I see on TV, but certainly I I'm influenced by it, and my impressions of history are influenced by you know fiction, and I'm sure that goes for for everyone. So certainly, uh, a piece of fiction or a piece of fictionalized history can defame someone. But the question is, you know, yeah, people are sophisticated enough. That to know that there are dramatizations made, that people are being loosey goosey with with the truth. So it's a it's a really delicate balance, and I don't know how the thing plays out because, like I said, this is the first trial ever over a docudrama. And so, will Netflix, you know, do a survey and you know bring experts on the witness stand to testify uh, what people really believe when when they see these things? It's possible. I think this is going to be a very very fascinating trial. Yeah, I'm also interested in why uh, a lot of other news organizations have uh, been afraid to touch a story involving Netflix and Ava DuVernay. Eric, keep us posted on this. Absolutely. When we come back, Bill Cohan is here to talk about Bob Iger's plans for ABC and ESPN. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Ben Landy, talking to the man and legend himself, Bill Cohan. Hey, Bill. Hey, Ben. Great to be here with you, as always. Let's get into it, because I want to pick your brain about a point you made the other day, which is that 
Bob Iger, who used to be in building mode at Disney, he was buying up Pixar, he's buying up Marvel, Star Wars. He is now trying to slim the company down after a pretty rough last year or so. ABC on the auction block, maybe some other linear TV networks. That has led to some speculation that maybe he's trying to slim down the entire company to make it palatable for a buyer. You've said, no way, not going to happen. Tell me why you don't think so. Well, look, the two parts, really. I mean, is he potentially slimming it down to try to find a buyer uh, who at least would be interested in what's left and get rid of the things that are losing value, like the linear TV assets, potentially like ESPN? Yes, I could I could see him trying to do that or, or thinking that's the right thing to do from a shareholder value creation perspective, which obviously he's under the gun to to do. So uh, so I could see him thinking that's a good idea. And he's basically said as much in, in the Sun Valley uh, interview, uh, whether it's actually going to result in somebody buying the company. You know, I think that's a, a much longer putt. Thinking that Apple's going to buy it is uh, pretty ridiculous in my book. Uh, but, you know, on the other hand, you know, could Amazon buy it? Uh, potential. I mean, they bought MGM for $9 billion. Would they buy Disney for $200 billion? I suppose they could. Uh, you know, they got a, what, a billion, trillion six market cap or something like that. So, you know, they could. And so, you know, could he be in, you know, in the mode of doing what Jeff Bukas did at Time Warner to, you know, hive off the pieces that he doesn't think a buyer will want. And that turned out to be successful from the Time Warner shareholder perspective. Uh, obviously, he got a big price out of AT&T, who then, you know, face-planted uh, on valuation when they spun it off and merged it with Discovery, create Warner Brothers Discovery. So, you know, are all these machinations, you know, everything's on the table, Ben, everything's on the table. So, uh, you know, anything's possible, I guess, at this point. It's, it's true. We're in the everything on the table era, as uh, Iger's made that point himself. And you're right, stranger things have happened. But l- let's talk about the bids that Disney has gotten so far or that we, we think we know about um, that have been reported for ABC and these other linear TV networks. Byron Allen has apparently offered 10 billion bucks. Nexstar, which owns News Nation and Food Network, and the CW is apparently another possible bidder that's out there. You were talking the other day to Rich Greenfield, who is the uh, esteemed Wall Street media analyst. He said those offers sounded painful to him, but that keeping ABC is more painful. Do you agree with that? Look, I, I, I mean, you know, it's it's incredible to think about. You know, Ben, in my lifetime, and I know I'm an older fellow, but uh, you know, once upon a time, you know, the Cap C- Disney Cap Cities deal was like a jewel of a deal, right? They spent uh, $19 billion on it to get ABC. Jack Welch spent $6.43 billion to buy RCA to get NBC. Uh, you know, Larry Tisch uh, bought CBS. Once upon a time, these uh, uh, linear TV, we didn't even call them that back then, these TV networks were were, were the jewels, the M&A jewels, the crown. If you could get one of these TV networks, you know, you were a total uh, M&A stud. This was absolutely the envy of a lot of people because of the power and prestige that it bestowed upon you. And now, basically, it seems like you can't give these things away. 
And in fact, that's probably right that you literally cannot give them away because they are declining uh, so rapidly. On the other hand, they do generate a lot of free cash flow and EBITDA. Uh, and so to me, the most obvious buyer is going to be some sort of a private equity alternative asset manager, buyer, somebody either with or without existing TV related assets. And, uh, you know, they're just going to pay whatever the mathematical price uh, figures out to be. And, uh, you know, I suspect that's more than the 10 billion that Byron Allen is offered because, you know, 10 billion, at least as far as, you know, it's hard to know exactly because they haven't broken out uh, in the financials. But if you look at sort of the linear TV financials in Disney's financial statements, you know, that whole sector has probably done about 8 billion of EBITDA in, in the last 12 months. Uh, so I don't know what percent that bear, of that that Byron Allen is offering to buy. I don't know. They haven't broken it out in a way that an outsider can see it. But still, 1.2 times EBITDA, that's not going to fly. A private equity firm, uh, you know, that's flush with cash would probably, it would definitely pay more than that and run it off, uh, use the cash flow to pay down debt. They can't sell it or take it public. Then they can do re dividend recaps and probably make a fortune as the thing goes down the tubes. So uh, I, I do agree with Rich that you know, not selling it is probably more painful than selling it, but I don't think it's going to be sold for $10 billion. But you know, again, I don't know the specific pieces and what the, the cash flow looks like from the specific pieces. I assume by now there's a, a book that Disney has put together about this, that there's an NDAs have been signed. I wish somebody would send it to us, Ben, so we could see, but uh, in the meantime, we'll just have to sort of wait and watch and see what happens. Bill, what's your latest thinking about ESPN, the other big linear network that the Disney controls that makes a ton of money, but is obviously in a declining business model? Last year, your your buddy Dan Loeb, the hedge fund guy, uh, proposed to Bob Chapek that maybe Disney should spin off ESPN with a bunch of debt. You thought that was sort of interesting. Kind of looks like Iger wants to hold on to ESPN for now. He's got this strategic partnership with Penn Gaming to integrate sports betting. But it, it sounds like you, you still think there's still kind of a possibility that ESPN could and maybe should be its own separate company. Uh, look, our friend Jimmy Pitaro, the CEO of ESPN, is busy trying to figure out how to make the transition from a linear ESPN to streaming ESPN. It's a major league uh, business conundrum. You know, how do you uh, replace the EBITDA that you're losing rapidly from people cutting the cord, you know, with this streaming uh, subscribers, streaming revenue? How do you price that so people just don't barf all over it? He seems like a nice guy uh, to me, but I don't know how he's going to figure this out. I don't know how anybody's going to figure this out. So if I were Bob Iger, I'd say, you know what? I don't need this headache anymore. I do love live sports, but why not bundle, well, you know, put ABC and those other networks, the cable networks together with ESPN and float it off with Disney debt and make it, spin it off to Disney shareholders, make it its own separate company. Uh, let the market figure out what the value of it is uh, over time. Uh, you know, if someone wants to come along and buy it, great. If they figure out this conundrum, if Jimmy can figure it out, you know, fabulous. The stock price will skyrocket. He'll make a fortune as the CEO, say, of this thing. If somebody comes along and buys it, 
guess he's figured it out. He'll make a fortune. Uh, you know, if he doesn't figure it out, then it'll, you know, slowly waste away. And maybe uh, somebody, a private equity firm or somebody will come along and buy it. Uh, I, I just think that Bob Iger needs to get, get rid of this. He needs to do something, right? He's, he announces earlier this week he's going to spend $60 billion over the next 10 years uh, on his parks business, which is the only asset, uh, the only division, the only business inside Disney that's really going great guns right now, which is, of course, ironic considering it was deader than a doornail during the pandemic for obvious reasons. So it's come back in a big way. He's going to now invest $60 billion over 10 years uh, into that business. You know, really? You know, is that the future of Disney, the parks? Well, maybe it's the only part of Disney that's that's making a lot of money, right? Like, I mean, if you spun off ABC and ESPN, you'd be left with Disney as sort of a pure play studio streamer. And uh, one half of that equation is only losing money. Right. That's true. Less money than they had been, like half as much, half the billion. Now they're only losing $500 million a quarter. But look, I think, you know, as Rich was saying, the content side of Disney is struggling right now. They can fix that. At some point, they will fix that. I, I don't know how. I, I don't know how you fix that. You know, do do better job, better content. But And then that'll feed the rest of the the Disney equation, the parks and the other, you know, because they... You know, they use their IP across many different platforms, but, you know, they're not using that Disney IP over at, you know, ESPN. So what do they need ESPN for? They're not really using it over at ABC either. What do they need that for? So I say package those two together, float them off, go back to the Dan Loeb idea, float them off and and get rid of them and, and let the market decide what they're worth. Let the market decide whether they're interesting or not. Let the market decide, uh, you know, if anybody wants to come along and buy them. Yeah, lots of interesting potential options out there. Bill, always appreciate having you on here to share your insight, expertise, analysis. Uh, We shall see what happens. Thanks as always. Thank you, Ben. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.